Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are talking about a big movie that is a brand new movie. We generally like to do old movies that are in the back of the library uh, that no one watches very regularly. Every once in a while we make an exception and watch a movie that people are watching right now. Um, This is one of those movies. This is Oppenheimer, a highly anticipated film by Christopher Nolan. I think this is the, what is this, the second Christopher Nolan film we've done in this podcast. We, We did Tenet a couple years ago. So I'm just going to launch into uh, my first uh, thoughts or my first impressions of of just simply sitting in the theater. Uh, Number one, Christopher Nolan is always trying to create not just a movie, not just a narrative, but an experience. (laughs) He's on record saying that he wants his movies to be seen in the theater. He's not a fan of streaming. He's a fan of the big movie theater experience, um, apparently the best and most um, legit way, so to speak, to experience Christopher Nolan is in an IMAX. I believe the last few movies he's made, he's literally made them for IMAX. Um, I was not in an IMAX theater for this one, but I was in a pretty big theater. And uh, yeah, he wanted to give me an experience. It was an experience. Um, it's a huge sound. <laughs> and I don't know if my theater had the volume turned up extra extra loud but by the time i got to the end of the the movie i just felt like i was being like crushed into my seat by the amount of this the sheer volume of sound that was coming at me and i think the, a big part of that really is just the way that nolan likes to approach his musical score and just the whole sound editing like i said he wants to give you a big experience and he relies um, pretty heavily on just the sound of his movie Um, That works on one level for this movie because you have, um, it's about the physics of a bomb and he's trying to give you an an audio sense of physics, you know, if that's even possible. He's at least shooting for that, it seems. But, and then visually also, it was just um, very big and, and, and powerful. I will say that I went into this film with kind of low expectations. And the reason for my low expectations was that I've always felt that Christopher Nolan is at his best when he's not even trying to do justice to the human characters of his films. Um, because again, he's more of a visuals guy, in my opinion. He's more he likes to create these kind of psychological puzzles, um, psychological thrillers. That's sort of what he's really good at. I've always felt, in general, watching his films, that one thing he's not great at is giving you a sort of subtle human performance, um, a sort of subtle look at at human nature and, and, at, and at what makes a person motivated to do this or that. How, so I went into this movie with misgivings because it seemed that, okay, this is something where he's, he's not just trying to tell a big Batman story. He's not trying to give you um, this sort of brain teaser com- complex narrative that he's created out of thin air. No, he's trying to do justice to an actual human character. So I was kind of worried, but I thought it actually worked, even on that human level, um, kind of for the first time in in my experience watching Christopher Nolan. Um, Maybe that was, or surely that is just as much um, 
thanks to Murphy's acting. He is a great actor um, starring in this movie, uh, Killian Murphy. But Nolan also gets gets credit for um, really feeling like, yeah, he did justice to the human subject of this drama. My, those are my first thoughts. Um, I'm, I'd love to hear both of yours. Yeah, I thought it was a great movie. My experience in a couple points would be this. Um, there was an article that came out a month before the movie and it said something like people who were able to preview Oppenheimer like left the theater devastated. So I was like, uh-oh, what's this going to be? And I also saw the length at three hours. So I, I guess I expected the movie to be slow and heavy. And I actually found it to be very fast. I mean, the movie moves along at a clip. And I didn't find it to be heavy or devastating. I thought it was deeply thoughtful. The government taking him, even though they have differing politics... They take him out of the university. They make exceptions because he's sort of very left-leaning. Um, the whole project, the Trinity Project out there in New Mexico, his different struggling relationships with women, the building of the bomb. I was really, you know, this this sounds like a bland statement, but I was there was education to it. I, I didn't know this stuff, and. My main point, uh, kind of to finish, would be is that sort of all those things I said are true. I would structure the movie differently, and I know that comes off as very arrogant, but I felt like it was two hours leading up to the detonation, the first successful detonation. And the great dramatic scene, which I found to be the height of the movie, is when he has to give a triumphant speech to the whole community, and they're stomping on the bleachers. And the stomping on the bleachers haunts him. And then you move, at the two-hour mark, to an extra hour of him being on trial, getting stripped of his license by the U.S. government, trying to defame him. So basically, you have no more say. You've designed the bomb. I didn't find that uninteresting, and I'm not upset that Nolan made it an extra hour, but it, it, it ends in the movie with, I mean, Nolan's always trying to end a movie with, like, a big moment, right? I mean, one of the biggest ones would be with DiCaprio. What's the one where he's dreaming? Oh, Mary- Inception. Inception. And, and, and you don't know if it's reality and the top is spinning or whatever. You know, and and Einstein finishes by saying, you know, he's saying something about destroying the world. And Einstein says, you know, we may have done so. Which is interesting in a way, but I felt that... Now, obviously, you can't structure a movie by taking all of that trial from years later and putting it through the whole thing. But I thought maybe you could just take one thing, which is that his speech after detonating the bomb with the stomping on the bleachers, and you have him give that speech at the end of the movie, and the bleachers are just stomping, 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 and it goes black. Because that was like... That was absolutely fantastic cinema. But then it felt like we were watching sort of a a documentary for an hour after the two-hour film. So I I don't – the only thing I came away with not enjoying was the structure and not even everything about the structure but the ending. There wasn't really an ending. And with Nolan, you're like, where's your ending? You're Christopher Nolan. So, But I I thought it was very good. And not my style of film, not my topic, but really thoughtful. I love Matt Damon, too. Good job. Matt Damon's always good. <laughs> you did a good job. Faithful to his wife, monogamous, <laughs> Catholic. All right, Father Allen, what are your thoughts? Well, the last half of the movie is the punishment of Prometheus. Yeah. So this movie is based on a, 
relatively recent, I suppose, I haven't looked exactly, but the biography of Oppenheimer called American Prometheus. And Nolan opens the film with a line about Prometheus and how he stole fire from the gods and was eternally punished. So I think he's saying that Oppenheimer's sort of rejection, decline in his reputation was sort of his, uh, his punishment. It's kind of a letdown in another way. So you were saying that just in terms of the pace of the movie, it, it's like dramatically anticlimactic. But, I mean, the bigger thing about Prometheus and stealing from the gods or offending the gods in any kind of big way, or like basically, I mean, it wasn't just a, 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 you know, a misdemeanor against the gods. It was basically, you know, what does it mean to steal fire from the gods? It means to usurp divine power arrogate to to oneself a non-god prerogatives of the gods this is a, a kind of ultimate sin the form of which we're familiar with in christianity satan in a certain way wants to be god without god and likewise adam and eve so to me the letdown is that and this is the harder problem of course he doesn't really say what is the nature of this sin that's involved here and what's the punishment of it? And he kind of alludes to the punishment for the rest of us. You know, nuclear weapons exist now. So the film addresses the problem, but it doesn't tie it up in a way. The rest of the film is like, it contains these different strategies for a nuclear, a post-A-bomb world. Do you guard the nuclear technology, or do you disseminate it to everyone? That was the basic disagreement between... Lewis and Oppenheimer, you know, and and it's also presented so like you know we're on the, we're on the edge of apocalypse as a race. It was a it was originally a remedy for Germany in World War II and to protect the Jews. I mean, this is how this is presented in the in the film. You know, so it's just interesting to think about in terms of like religious history that the protection of the Jews is associated with putting the entire world on the brink of destruction. If nothing else, like Israel, uh, Israel in a kind of religious sense, not necessarily a state of Israel, but the Jews have a cosmic uh, role to play here. This is not meant to be a charged statement at all, just in commentary, to show my utmost friendliness to our Jewish neighbors. I was actually at a Dartmouth activities fair for new students yesterday, and our, our neighbors were Chabad. And the rabbi had a big loaf of challah bread that he cooked. My grandmother makes this braided challah bread, too. I actually entered the guessing contest, how much does it weigh? And I missed by, like, 0.5 pounds, or else I would have won that. Regrets in life. My point being, I, this, was, this was new to me, and I actually found an article online through, through the help of a friend, which was fascinating, is that you do have... So everyone knows about the Holocaust and sort of that chapter of Judaism. Um, as victims. But it is also interesting, too, that the vast majority of physicists in Europe and for the Americans were also Jewish. And it goes into this thing, especially in Budapest and Hungary. It's a really fascinating piece of history to say that actually, you know, Oppenheimer himself born in New York on the Upper West Side, um, but also many others from Europe. Budapest at the time and Germany had these in education, some of the only ones really interested in quantum physics. Jews were in many ways on the on the forefront of science in this age, Einstein onwards. Um, 
it's thought-provoking. And this guy goes into the thing of basically talking about how it began with math and education as a cultural thing in Eastern Europe to get ahead. And it created this really strong academic culture of math and science, basically the first people to really be STEM people. Again, I, I just present it as a piece of history. I don't think it comes from Judaism itself, but it is. Yeah, it it's, is, also, it, yeah. it's also kind of a neutral field in a sense. Like, it's not a political field. Yeah. If you're kind of a politically sensitive community, you know, that's one reason to go into an apolitical field. But anyway. One thing, yeah, that I do want to come back to amidst all this is, uh, yeah, the question you were raising a minute ago, Father Allen, about... Yeah, whether it, the movie does justice to the punishment that uh, comes from the act of, so to speak, stealing fire from the gods or usurping a divine power. And I agree with you that, it, that it maybe the film doesn't do justice in a clear way. It does do justice to it, I would say, in just a, a kind of general way. And I'll try to explain what I mean, but just that you really do have a sense of gloom and doom throughout the entire movie, right? You know, I mean, it it, um, it starts off with that not-so-subtle allusion to a poisoned apple, right? Throughout, you just see, you sense the mess of Oppenheimer's own life. You see that in his personal relationships. You see that um, just in all of the, the suspicion and paranoia that is there throughout his whole the whole process of building the bomb, how much fear is is there, and then how that fear doesn't isn't eased through the making of the bomb, but actually just grows, and how it then wreaks havoc on our own national society and our own paranoia, not only to, uh, regarding enemies without, but enemies within. I already mentioned just the way the, the movie, the, the music of the movie has this overwhelming heaviness to it, but all of which I think just adds up to just this overall conviction and claim, you know, on the part of uh, perhaps the director saying that uh, if you choose to usurp a godlike power, um, you're going to pay the consequences and it's going to, those consequences are going to, are going to be experienced in really everything, every, every part of your life um, and not just your professional life. You know, it's funny. I think about my own education Father Luke, in response to sort of this national worry, because I was born 87, towards the end of the Cold War. I started to think when I was in college, and maybe it's occurred to me in years previous, that I probably learned one day in class, you know, about Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and then we kind of moved on, and I'm not even trying to really sort of consider the ethics and the wrongness of the rightness of dropping nuclear bombs but it's even just the fact that that's a pretty major thing to do and i just don't i don't hear anybody talking about it it's not really in our american conversation in my education at 36 years old i think heard about it once or twice maybe maybe it's different for the both of you but i'm I'm actually quite surprised and i'm also quite surprised too in this moment when the bomb is made and then dropped and then also in the years of the cold war there, there was a whole chapter of fear but it is surprising that in our lifetime, it's really not a discussion topic. I mean, it pops up pretty regularly with, like, North Korea and now with Russia, you know, th- at least threatening to use nuclear bombs. But, uh, but yeah, it's not, a, it's not an ongoing discussion topic, yeah. People have made the remarks that, that now, when we're 
fighting Russia, I mean, NATO and the West, which is a nuclear power, that people don't seem to have the, the same kind of fear that they had during the Cold War. Yeah. And it's so it's something has happened where people just sort of get used to nuclear weapons. I think one important thing in all this to think about is, um, yeah, just the, the uh, just the ethical question of it. And I guess the um, of, of creating it in the first place. And I guess what I was really struck by is that, yeah, when you have sin in the world, when you have the situation of bad people doing bad things, it creates these, in a sense, like insoluble moral dilemmas, you know, so like to drop the bomb on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, there's a pretty good consensus and Catholics would agree with this, that that was, that's not defensible morally. Um, because of how many innocent lives are taken. But the question that this movie raises is, okay, well, is it is it defensible to re- to create it in the first place? You know, there's that very memorable line, I think, which uh, I think it's Oppenheimer who says this, where he just says, look, I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't. And so that, that, that that's the big question that arises. Like, okay, if your enemy is creating this weapon and they want to use it, um, is it okay to make it? And I think it's pretty clear that the answer is, yeah, you know, it's not morally intrinsically wrong to create a weapon per se. Um, but gosh, it really gets you into problematic territory. But then you get the small historic foil, which I didn't know, is that Hitler commits suicide before they actually detonate the first test. And so it's like, do we want to move forward with this? Because mm-hmm. that was the motive. The Nazis will... Right do it if we don't and then it's let's proceed anyway sure because we've come this far yeah i mean one thing i found just reading a little bit about this many catholics know that there are moral objections to the use of the bomb but i was surprised to find that there were actually pretty strong strategic objections to the use of the bomb like a lot of people thought that japan could be made to surrender without the use of the bomb, and even without egregious casualties, like it would have been a matter of negotiation. Apparently MacArthur thought this and a bunch of other people. I mean, there's a list of, you know, some of the names are recognizable. But the other thing that was interesting is that apparently this Lewis figure, I can't remember the rest of his name, but, you know, the one in the film played by uh, Robert Downey Jr., he had a suggestion which was to just bomb a kind of national forest in Japan, a source of great national pride, like a monument, something like bombing the redwood forest, but more important. He was just saying this would have just shown what we were capable of doing. But anyway, regardless of like the show of power, many people at the time thought that they could get Japan to just surrender if they had negotiated. So... Uh, that's just another interesting thing in the background here that, that the film doesn't really acknowledge. And I'm, I'm not sure how fringe this idea is, but I came across it and it seemed fairly credible. To make a comparison with another film, which we do often, um, I think of the movie Arrival. Have both of you seen that with Amy Adams? Because it's interesting. People quickly, every nation goes to their guns. And, um, and I, of course, that, I've heard the movie criticized that the linguistics or whatever she uses to communicate with the aliens and find peace with them is not exactly accurate. It's not my field. But but there's something there, too, about, like, there is, when it comes to, I mean, none of us have ever been in positions of, like, civil office, especially when it comes to the military. And there's just something to be said about 
When you have entire nations under your people, nations under their care, I don't know. It's it's a funny thing for us, you know, not just as Catholic priests, but as individuals to sit around, any individual to sit around and think about decisions and armament and use and military force when I think, not to say you you change from becoming human if you're if you sit in office but I, I i think it's just worth saying i don't know what it's like to actually sit with such decisions or to be a part of those decisions at all sure. and we we can eva- we we can fairly evaluate them in some ways but there's something to be said too about our inexperience of um war and and obviously we can criticize say hey you know what is this fallenness which which sometimes rushes to war too quickly or just goes right to arms but I also have never been in that place, is my point. And the second thing I would say is, it's funny, I was, just to bring in some own personal stuff, I was uh, driving this past week listening to an audio book on George III, so at the time of the American Revolution. It's, it's a great book, it's called The Last King of America. But it's funny in a way, it's like part of his deficiencies in dealing with our revolution in many ways were that he was schooled in the arts and letters and poetry but he was just he just never set foot on any military field he had zero military training and so there is just something to be said about yeah i i would i would listen to people like macarthur more than any theorist there's just something about those in that field i would take more seriously than others i don't know much about that but i like father allen's comments in that in that domain i just one thing i just wanted to um Observe before we do all sign off is uh, this movie was an occasion for me to reflect a little bit on one of the hallmarks of Christopher Nolan's directing, which is uh, he loves what is sometimes called the shattered narrative, where you have, you know, you're constantly hopping back and forth um, uh, in, in time to the past, present, future, past, present, future, um, and you're seeing the same conversation or the same scenario from different perspectives. You know, from these, this, you're talking about one situation from two people over here talking on a train and then switching to, you know, a room where the same thing is being discussed. And it's a very quick motion, um, sort of kaleidoscope sort of feel where you're constantly, the, the vantage point is constantly shifting um, in time and in place. And um, I just found myself thinking about, you know, uh, okay, number one, is that just a gimmick <laughs> to keep people clued in, right? Because, uh, Nolan knows that we're all um, attention challenged in the 21st century, and that forces us to stay on our toes. Number one, number two, um, or is there is there something actually that's gained through it? And um, I I felt myself thinking that no, there is something gained through that that constantly changing perspective. And I feel like even though it could be argued that it's a very postmodern style of filmmaking, where you're kind of choosing to deny the the perspective of one sort of omniscient perspective on the film that ultimately it kind of works to give you a kind of a godlike perspective on it all that you're you're constantly seeing the whole um all at once in a sense from like like looking at one crystal from with many different surfaces you're sort of always able always keeping in mind and able to see all at once the past present and future so um Overall, I, f- I find that 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 uh, you know a powerful hallmark of his of his style, which he uses well in this in this case. Quick question for you, Father Luke. You're a big Nolan fan. When did that start? Was it the Batman trilogy? Was it other movies? When well, did you get well, hooked? I am honored to be asked this question. Um, 
my first introduction to Nolan was Batman Begins. And, and then it Batman was Batman Begins knocked my socks off and then um and then Prestige is the one that he then came out with um right after Batman Begins before he did Dark Knight and Prestige is is a movie that really um got my attention as well. So <laughs> I love we we got to see him too. We mentioned this in a previous podcast. He spoke at Library of Congress years ago in DC. That's right. That's got right. Got to see him interviewed. Yeah, that was wonderful. All right, um, Father Allen, concluding remarks, or are you all said and done? No, I mean, I have some further thoughts, but they're pretty lengthy, so. Yeah, why, don't, why don't you name three of them just to just so we're left? Sure, okay. It's cliffhangers. Um, the glorification of the scientist as seer. Okay. Especially at the beginning. Yep. You no, know, I think that's a little bit off. The physicist is not the ultimate um, point of view. And it's really something more like the metaphysician or the the prophet. Communism. You have a sense that like the movie is just. And Father Luke alluded to this. Not the movie, but just the history. The people here are like not addressing the problem. <laughs> they're grasping at all of these plausible solutions, but they're they're never really getting it. You know. So you have Nazism. You have communism. You have nuclear weaponry. Now, all of these are sort of like, for a time, they're provisional solutions. They're not, and, they're, and they only exacerbate like the human problem. Another thing that is very small in the film, but it's actually probably pretty important in reality, is is the idea that um, quantum physics is somehow compatible with revolution, with political revolution. At the first communist gathering. I mean, there's a suggestion that quantum physics is appropriate to an age of revolution and and to communism since, you know, traditional communism involves worldwide revolutions. And I guess the idea is that quantum physics has a kind of contradiction in it that I believe something like, you know, light is both a particle and a wave or physical reality is self-contradictory and in that sense, chaotic or um, nihilistic, like it doesn't make sense. So fundamentally, the world doesn't make sense. It's fundamentally chaotic. And therefore, we, you know, we have a kind of mandate to to conform ourselves to that and act chaotically in the political, you know, the human realm. All right. So that's like the, you know, I mean, there's a ton of problems with this as a, you know, a way of thinking, but um that's just in there. And I don't know if Oppenheimer himself, I mean, many people, you know, literate people, smart people endorse this kind of thing. It's the same thing with like relativity. So Einstein has a theory of relativity, which is a physical theory. And then this somehow is made to support like moral relativism, you know? Yeah, I would only... And there's a ton of problems with that. I would only add to what you're saying... I kind of I kind of wonder how serious that is in any instance, you know. I mean these guys are at like Berkeley and Chicago trying to match these two things, science and politics. But I think it's going on in the academy now all over the place. It's like it's basically whatever's fashionable politically, whatever social movements are happening, academics are like the first ones they to try sort to of support it with whatever yeah, they know. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're a literature professor, it's like, well, you want to match these two things. I think it's a trend that's not just I would actually say at present day maybe I can't speak to this much, but 
even working on a college campus, I see it influencing the hard sciences less than humanities. Humanities tends to just get on board with anything political to justify its mm-hmm. own existence. Hard sciences. But I do wonder, like, as I think Oppenheimer in two aspects, like in he himself and his wife, etc., and his, like, friends, I think in two senses they're portrayed in the movie as... This is just kind of like a fashionable social movement that they're like young professors also dabbling in. But mm. also, like, I don't know how robust the connection is. Maybe it's just fashionable and they're like trying to see the connection. But I also wonder if it's also through the lens of the U.S. government. They just see these people as dangerous leftists, etc. And that's kind of how the whole movie is. He's painted as like... You know, somebody with questionable social allegiances or patriotism. And so yeah. once he's used, they can easily <clears throat> discredit him and get him out of the conversation because they hold that over him. I think probably the book, too, present Oppenheimer as a kind of hero. Maybe they present, I mean, only a hero in the sense of sort of like someone who's really smart and free thinking and is used by the government, but then their own complicated conversations, they're going to make the decisions with you and with warheads. And that's a process you can't be a part of. I mean, I guess, I guess a hero is sort of like a victim hero, like a smart victim hero. Um, all right. I'm being told to wrap it up. So it's good to be with you all. Um, we do not have a set movie for for next time, but we will set one for next time, and it will be probably um, less of a serious subject than this. Until then, we go away with gloomy, foreboding music. <laughs>